God, unless your spirit is at work here this morning, we, we won't see or understand. Apart from you and what you've done, apart from your spirit at work in our lives and our hearts, the natural man can't see the spiritual. And so we, we pray, God, that you'd be active here, awakening our, our hearts and minds, um, giving light to our eyes, letting us see the sun. Give us eyes for the word. Give us eyes for, for Christ this morning. Let us see and understand the truth. Let us, um, uh, by your spirit, be prompted to, to repent of sin and to grow in grace and mercy through what you've accomplished for us. And we pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Many are the stories in literature of orphans who are on a journey to discover who or where they belong. And in that search, they come to not only locate their parents, but find that their identity is above and beyond anything that they could ever imagine. Right? So, so many examples. I'm going to leave your favorite one out, I promise. And I, non-intentional. But like the Dickens tale about Oliver Twist. We see this where he discovers that um, his father is actually the wealthy Ed, Edwin Leaford. And so he receives an inheritance that he never anticipated, right? Uh, in almost every version of the fairy tale, Rapunzel is the daughter of the king and queen. We're shown in the Broadway musical Annie that the man who desires to, to adopt this little girl in the midst of the Great Depression of 1933 is America's richest billionaire, Oliver Warbucks, right? And so what I want us to do this morning is like imagine having a conversation with Oliver Twist or Rapunzel or Annie and you're like, you better sit down for this because I have three things to tell you and increasingly they might grow more and more intense. First, we found a home for you. And second, you know who this person is that's bringing you in. It's making you part of their family. And that's because, third, they're this really powerful, important person, or there's some inheritance that you're, you're receiving, right? Like, these, these questions of identity find their way into these stories because they're inherently suspenseful. But because they're inherently suspenseful, when we finally get answers, there's this, like, growing intensity, growing, like, three statements here that, that just, like, grows in intensity. This is why Zechariah, you know, ends in suspense, question of identity. And then the Gospels begin their account and uh, there's this fervor pitch. There's a fervor pitch in Jerusalem, you know, for uh, messianic expectation, right? Why? Because Zechariah ends with this question of identity. A branch is coming, a shoot from the line of David. He's going to put everything to rights. Who is he? From him you'll receive an inheritance like nothing you've ever dreamed. Who is he? His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor and Prince of Peace. Who is he? He's described in some places in Zechariah, if you remember, that make him sound like a man who's going to come, a coming king from the line of David, so he's a man. And yet he's described in terms that can really only be applied to Yahweh, to God, right? So who is he? There's this inherent suspense. And if you remember... From last week, the purpose of John is to answer that question. Who is he? Who is the Christ? Who is the Messiah, the one who is promised? John sets out to answer this question, and he doesn't waste any time. So the gospel, according to John, begins with a prologue. That's what we find in these first 18 verses. Right? This is like a, a beginning point. It's a prologue. And the way that a prologue, especially this one, the purpose of a prologue is like, it's kind of like to be a greeter at an event that tells you as you arrive, like takes your coat and tells you what to expect. Here's the schedule. Here's some things to be looking out for. Here's some themes, right? Like That's what's happening here. Many of the themes and words that will come up throughout John are repeatedly mentioned in these 18 
verses that we'll be in for the next several weeks. Right? So words like life, light, darkness, scent, truth, world, believe, know, receive, witness, glory. Like all of these things are stated here and then they're unpacked, right, in the rest of the book. They're introduced and then they're returned throughout, but there's something unique happening here in John 1 because like all of those words that we're going to come back to later on is in these 18 verses. The Word. The Logos. Read verse 1 with me. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. Okay, so John wants to begin, you know, not immediately by telling us something that Jesus did or was doing. He's not even going to begin in an immediate sense by telling us why Jesus came. Hang on a minute. Listen. But rather, he, he talks to us about the very nature of God's revelation to us in the first place. So whenever I use this word revelation, I'm talking about like just God revealing himself to people. God shows himself to people. He displays himself to people, right? That's God's revelation. So that's what John's interested in as a starting point. You see this phrase, in the beginning, and it's interesting because John probably writes his gospel account last. I'm pretty certain. Um, probably written at least two decades after Mark started to circulate. And he's undoubtedly familiar with Mark's introductory words. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So Mark begins with Jesus' ministry. Then Luke, you know, he's like, oh, go back a little bit further still. And, and, and I think John's likely familiar with Luke's beginning with the events that transpired just before Jesus' birth. So Luke brings it back to his birth. And then Matthew goes back a little further still. He, he starts with a genealogy that ties Jesus back to Abraham. But John wants to go back further still. Why? Because he wants us to make sure that we understand what it is that, that's being revealed to us. Like, this is really important. I don't want to just skip over this. See, because this is at the, the center, at the center of this is a question of identity, right? And because of that, the concept of revelation is on John's mind. Remembering that John is writing specifically to a spiritually seeking person, people, is helpful to us here, I think. If, if you didn't get a chance to listen to last week's introductory message, I, I, I preached on John 20, 30 to 31. This is John's purpose statement, I think this is going to be really helpful for you to understand why John's saying what he's saying. So if, if you didn't get a chance to listen, go back and listen. We're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify Podcasts. But find that and listen. Because at least part of the reason that it's helpful for us to remember that John is talking to spiritually seeking non-believers, that he's writing this in large part for evangelism, and that he's focused on revelation is because this tends to be, understandably, one of the first questions that people who are curious about Christianity will ask. Like I've heard this from a lot of non-believing people over the years, a lot of my non-believing friends. The question will be something like, yeah, but how do you know that God revealed himself in the Christian Bible? You know, like, how do you know that God revealed himself in such a specific way to begin with? How do you know that God didn't just like wind up the world and set it off 
and remained hidden and just didn't tell us anything about himself. And there's, I think there's a step-by-step progression that leads to this conclusion. And I, I think you can actually reach it by answering a set of questions. So, you know, um, quite a few times I've sat across from someone and I've asked, you know, who's, who's had this question? And I've asked them, like, does God exist? I guess the starting point. Are you open to the idea? Like, is it possible? Is it even plausible in your mind that God exists? Or, like, um, is it likely, is it more likely, that this world as we know it, with all of its beauty, having come into existence out of perfect circumstances and only sustained because those perfect circumstances have continued, along with human ingenuity, creativity, life, happiness, love, the fact that you and I are sitting across from one another, sharing a coffee, having this, like, Remarkable conversation, and you are you, and I am me, right? Like, is it, is it likely that all of that was brought about out of nothing? Random happenstance. If, if we're open to the idea that, no, it's very plausible that there's a God who is a first mover, who brought this world into existence, who, who created us uniquely, right? If that's, if that's true, then the second question becomes, the next question is, would that God reveal himself? And, and I think it's equally plausible to say, to conclude, if he's good, he would. A good God would reveal himself. Rather than remain hidden or aloof, rather than causing humanity to question how they might know this God or, or whether his existence even matters to us, a good God would reveal himself in a way that would allow his creation to know him. So then the question becomes, if given those two things, God's existence, good God would then reveal himself. Where has God revealed himself? And in an ultimate kind of sense, that is what John is interested in describing to us here. John is interested in showing us precisely where and how, in very specific terms, God has revealed himself to us. And it's interesting because here you have John writing this gospel account as revelation to us. From the Holy Spirit, writing about revelation from God, and later on, he'd write a book entitled Revelation, but the point is, he's setting out here to identify how God has revealed himself, right? So he's, John, writing revelation, like this is the Holy Spirit inspiring his words that we might, this is God's, God revealing his word to us. But he's writing about how God, identifying very specifically how God has revealed himself. And the identifier he chooses is this word logos, translated word in most of our English Bibles. So this morning, we want to first just ask one question, followed by three more specific answers, right? So what does God mean by this term word? And then we'll set out to answer that question by specifically looking at these three short statements of John chapter 1, verse 1. Like, that's the outline for this morning. John makes three short, succinct statements about the identity of this word. So we want to ask, what does John mean by the word? And then answer that question. We have this question of identity followed by these three statements. And just like the hypothetical conversation with, like, Oliver Twist, Rapunzel, Annie, about the identity of their parents, each of the st- in each of these statements, John grows more and more intense. It becomes more and more unbelievable to the hearer. 
So a question followed by three short statements seeking to answer that question. Let's, let's read verse 1 in its entirety again. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So what exactly does John mean by this term, Word? What is the Word? Well, so this is where translation work can get kind of tricky, admittedly, right? Like, and it's not just translation in the Bible. It's any translation. When we first started bringing teams over to the Czech Republic, um, like I, I brought a high school team over in like 2007, you know, and I, I did that for like 10 years, you know, where I was bringing teams over to Czech. And each year, you know, you'd be confronted by the trickiness of translation because I'd be delivering this message, this talk to students, but before I would do that, I'd have to sit down with my translator ahead of time and kind of work through my manuscript because there, oftentimes what would happen is there would be some kind of word that I'd use and, you know, Roddick, my friend, who did, would say, ah, there really, I mean, I know what you mean, so I'll be able to translate that, but there's really not a great word for that in Czech, right? So um, the same thing is true here, because on the one hand, we don't have a great term to translate this Greek word, logos. It has so much caught up in it related to first century Greek thought, first century categories, Greek thought, Hebrew thought. It's tough to capture the meaning in a concise, contemporary English term, but on the other hand, I really do think the word is the best term to use in a translation. Some have opted not to translate it at all, just to say, um, in the beginning was the Logos, and the Logos was with God, and the Logos was God. And I, I think I understand the reason behind that. It's because it's like, we want to try to just get rid of all categories and get back to the word that's being used because it's so unique. The problem with that is, though, that Anyone in our culture who does have an understanding or background with this term logos likely equates it with human reason. Kind of like Jordan Peterson or a whole host of modern psychologists who believe that the divine word is this like you're speaking, this is like you speaking coherent reason to people, studying and speaking and, and having the opportunity to write. Um, that's the logos. Um, uh, historians might link it with, with Greek Stoicism's belief that logos was the rational principle by which everything exists. And, and so I think that would be worse, that background would be worse than using this term word. Because while it's true that the word logos has background in Greek thought, that's not the background that John starts with. John has a different starting point than Greek thought. And, and as a term, the word really does capture, I think, what John's after because Okay, just think about it for a minute. Let me just invite you into it. What does the word word mean? Just think about it for a minute. Like, don't overthink it. Don't overthink it. What is a word? Just think about it. What is a word? A word is a means of communication. Right? Like, at its base level, strip it down. A word is an expression of what's on someone's mind. Okay? It reveals what someone's thinking or doing. And John here wants to say, listen... This Jesus, this one with whom I walked, about whom I now write to you, he is God's own self-expression. He was God's word in action. And so when we think about this term, the word, rather than thinking in Greek categories, I think he chooses the word very like winsomely, a word that Greeks would be familiar with. But listen, rather than thinking in, in Greek categories, John wants to start instead with the Old Testament in which this term is used to describe God's creation of the world, God revealing himself to his people, 
and God rescuing his people. All these things that John is super interested in talking about in terms of the life of Jesus. So like in Genesis 1, we read that God spoke the world into existence. So he said, and there was. He said, and there was, right? Psalm 33, we'll come to this next week. So we be talking more about creation in verses 2 through 5. But in Psalm 33, we read that it was by the word of the Lord that the heavens were made. But then, as we've seen preaching through prophetic books, so on the one hand, this, this word is like creation, like a means of creation. On the other hand, like we just preached through Zechariah, and do you remember how this term is used there? The word of the Lord came to Zechariah, son of Berechiah, son of Iddo, saying, right? Like the word of the Lord came. The word of the Lord came. And, and this is talking about God revealing himself to his people. And then in Psalm 107, what do we find? This crying out to God for help. In Psalm 107, there's a crying out to God. You know? And the response in the text is this. He sent forth his word and healed them and delivered them from destruction. In the Old Testament, word also carries that Right? So throughout the Old Testament, the Word is the agent that created the world, reveals God to his people, delivers them from destruction, brings like salvation to God's people. So tying that all together, John is saying, listen, that Word that you read about, it's a person. He has a name. And this is where John's logos is so radically different from the Greek-speaking world, whereas the reason described in the Greek-speaking world was merely like this intellectual pursuit for John, this Logos is a distinct person who becomes incarnate, becomes flesh. In effect, John is writing to these spiritually seeking Greek and Jewish people. He's using a term that all of them are going to have some commonality with, all of them are going to have some familiarity with, some context for, but he's telling them that the truth related to what this term actually means is all wrapped up in the person of Jesus Christ. Like, you're not going to understand anything about creation or deliverance or uh, God's revelation, God revealing himself, unless you understand Jesus. You're not going to understand anything about reason and logic unless you understand Jesus, unless you know Jesus, unless you know Jesus, right? And so various commentators have, have different ways of saying the same thing related to the definition of the word. I want to compile some definitions for you here. D.A. Carson defines it as God's ultimate self-disclosure. F.F. Bruce refers to, to the word as the divine self-expression. Grant Osborne says Jesus is the living revealer of God. And so that's the idea here. He's the word, God's own self-disclosure, his self-expression, the living revealer of God. And so if John's audience is familiar with John's imagery at all, his use of this term at all, and, and, and they are, I would argue, they want to know more about this one. This is where we now focus on three statements, each of which grows progressively more intense. So, who is this word? Here's the first one. In the beginning was the word. In the beginning was the word. So we mentioned this briefly, but John begins at a much different starting point than anyone else really in Scripture though he clearly mirrors other places, other beginning points in Scripture. So we talked about the words beginning the very first gospel account, the gospel according to Mark, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So um, Mark, 
marks out the beginning of Jesus' ministry. So if you read Mark 1, what's Jesus doing? He's already like declaring to people, repent and believe the gospel. Repent and believe the gospel. Right? That's the starting point of Mark's account. And I think John might be mirroring Mark's words as a way of like alluding to Mark, but saying, eh, let's go further back than that. Okay? And in order to really make his point, how far back does he go? He uses the same phrase that begins Genesis 1.1. That's not, this is not coincidental. You know, John knows what he's doing with these words. He knows that the knowledge and images that are going to come to the mind of his readers. He says, in the beginning. In Genesis 1.1, in the beginning. Yet, John actually has a different starting point than even Genesis. Genesis says that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Speaking of the old creation, we're going to talk about this more next week. Speaking of the old creation, and John says, eh, let's go back a little further than that. You know, John wants to show us what is at the beginning of everything. Old creation, new creation, the life of God and the soul of man. What stands at the beginning point of everything in the world? The Word. The Word stands there. Before space and time existed, this Word existed. Know that the way the grammar reads, John actually cannot be saying, like it rules out the possibility that he could be saying, in the beginning, the Word came into being. Or, in the beginning, the word came into existence. For a first century audience, opening this book to discover what John is saying about this Jesus of Nazareth, these statements seem provocative, right? It's going to increasingly feel that way. It's like, you're saying that this man that you walked alongside of as he ministered throughout Judea existed from the very beginning of time and space? You're saying that there's not ever a period of time in which you could ever say that he didn't exist? It's a particularly important point because... There have been so many false teachings related to this person of Jesus claiming him to be like a created being. Arius being the most famous in early church history to make this claim. But John, look, I mean, we're going to talk about that again, but John couldn't be more straightforward here throughout this account that Jesus was not created. He did not have some kind of starting point. In fact, he is the starting point of everything else. Anything that is not him had a starting point. Anything that is not God, this God had a starting point, and he's the starting point. Right? Um, and so we see here, before space and time came to existence, the word already was. F.F. Bruce does a good job of summarizing really how strong John's phrasing is here. I don't want to just brush over this too quickly. He writes, so when heaven and earth were created, there was the word of God. No matter how far back, we may try to push our imagination. We can never reach a point at which we could say of the divine word, as Arius did, there was once when he was not. We can never, we can never do that. Not based on John's words here. Not based on other words we find in Scripture. Okay, so it's very clear. So in the beginning was the word. And second, the word was with God. So again, like each clause gets more and more intense because there was so much suspense each clause gets more and more intense. Not only was this word eternally preexistent, so that when heaven and earth were created, there the word was already existing. But he was already existing in personal relationship with God. Like, in other words, this, this word with that John's using, throughout the, throughout the New Testament, it's always referring to personal relationships. Person to person. Being in person or in relationship with another person. 
And by the time we get to the next clause and read that not only, okay, a little bit of a spoiler, not only is he with God, but he is God, we come to find a Godhead with different distinguishable persons, enjoying personal relationships with one another. Christians refer to this as the doctrine of the Trinity, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, three persons in one, God, all equally and fully God, but all distinguishable from one another as persons of the Godhead. Eternally enjoying one another and in relationship with each other. The Father loving the Son. The Son loving the Spirit. The Spirit loving the Father. All of them loving one another as persons of the Godhead. The Father sending the Son. The Son obeying the will of the Father. The Spirit pointing people to the work of the Son so that they might see the kind of life that God offers. And I think, so, alright, so there's this trinity. There's this, like, speaking of God in these terms. But I think, like, in our pursuit of Christianity we can get really stymied by the Trinity. Like, we can get put off. And I think the reason we get stymied is in asking why it matters. Like, why does this matter? And I, I, I hear this, right? I mean, like, I, as a pastor, as I talk with people about these things, I often hear express the sentiment, like, Jeremy, I don't want to think about the Trinity. It makes my head hurt. You know, like, why does it even matter? Why can't we just say that we have one God and we really don't understand how he operates, and there are these different views on the Trinity. And um, you know, just as an aside, this is like one of the few things that survived schism across, like, you know, all three major branches of Christendom Roman Catholicism, Reformed Protestantism, Eastern Orthodoxy all agree that Trinity is a test for Orthodoxy, all of them. And when Roman Catholicism uh, Protestantism and Eastern Orthodoxy all agree on something for 2,000 years, we should sit up and pay attention, right? So it's, it's important, okay? And yet here we see John saying, you know, so we say, why does it matter? Well, here we see John saying, the Word already existed in the beginning in the closest association with God and partaking in the very essence of God in his first verse, right? In the very first verse of his gospel account. Why? Because apparently it really matters. That's the first thing he, that's what he starts with. But why? Because John is about to tell us that this word became flesh and dwelled among us. He's going to tell us why he came. Why did he come? And that has everything to do with his Trinitarian nature. Like, I think we, we make the mistake so often of jumping right into why did God come without first asking who is God? You know, but before we get to why he came, we need to deal with the nature of who he is. Because it changes everything. It changes everything. I'm not sure if you've seen the movie um, uh, 13 Lives. It's based on the true story of the soccer team in Thailand five years ago. You may remember 12 boys and, and one of their coaches exploring this cave right before monsoon season. And it gets totally flooded out, right? And so they, they have to dead sprint to the very back end of this, these caverns, like miles in, into, the, into the mountain, right? And the whole thing floods out except for this back cavern. Um, it was international news like five years ago. And so the Thailand government brought in these cave divers who, um, through a series of dangerous twists and turns, they were expecting to find these boys dead, but they found them alive in this back cavern. The problem was nobody knew how to get them out. And that was what was uh, in international media, right? Everyone for days was like, how are we going to get them out? They're, they're, it's re there's really not a lot of clarity. Until these divers kind of configured this way of bringing oxygen to the boys, sedating them, fitting them with, fitting them with 
diving suits, masks that, that would fit them. And bringing all of that in, sedating them, and then one by one, carrying them out to safety. And miraculously, they didn't know if this would work. They didn't know if the sedating would have issues. Like, they had to sedate them because otherwise they knew, like, in the midst of those twists and turns and currents, they'd freak out. The masks would come off, right? Like, they had to do this. Um, but miraculously, every single one of them made it out alive, right, and well. And it's one of these movies where you know the outcome before you watch it because it's this international story, but it's still such, this, such a moving picture of these men risking their lives for these, for these boys. Why do I bring it up? Because, listen, these cave divers, they already possessed oxygen. Like, they already possessed everything they needed to get from cavern to cavern and to get out safely. Just by nature of who they were as divers. Like, you can't be a cave diver without oxygen. And obviously, they didn't get into that cavern in order to get oxygen. Like, they didn't, they didn't go there because they needed... Like, they had spent hours and hours and hours, days, studying this map of this cavern so that they could go in these various places, charting it all out. They didn't go into that cavern to ask directions. They didn't go into that cavern because they needed someone to talk to, you know? They went to spread their oxygen for those boys, not to receive something from them. And this is really, it's an imperfect illustration, I grant you, but it's really how, you know, like theologians like Jonathan Edwards have rightly described the Trinity and what it means for God's people. God, by virtue of who he is as, as Trinity, did not create humanity in order to receive love from them or to gain relationship from them that he didn't already possess. He didn't come into the world as some, in some kind of deficit. The divers didn't have this deficit. God isn't coming into the world operating out of some kind of deficit because he already perfectly possessed love from within himself from eternity past. Right? From within the Godhead. The Word was with God. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit sharing perfect love and relationship from all eternity and loving one another far better than we could ever love God. Far better than any human could ever love God. So he didn't create the world out of some neediness to receive praise. He wasn't bored. He didn't need somebody to talk to. If that was the case, he'd, he'd be very much like the Greek deities because that was true of them. It's how they interacted with people. Always very needy and fickle and temperamental, right? Like Zeus needed. He actually needed the praise of people in order to gain strength. That's why he created. So when he didn't receive it, he held grudges. He behaved vindictively, right? Um, the God of the Bible was already satisfied in perfect love and relationship from eternity past. He needed nothing. So he didn't create. He had no deficit. He didn't create in order to receive glory. Why did he create? He created to show and display his glory. He created to spread his love and display his love. The Word doesn't become flesh because the Word needed something out of some kind of deficit. Yes, he receives glory. Yes, you better believe he receives glory, but he didn't create out of a deficit of glory that then needed to be filled up by human praise. The Word doesn't come into humanity because the Word needed something from humanity. The Word becomes flesh because we needed him to rescue us. He came to spread his love by way of the cross centrally. That's where he does it. He revealed himself to us that we might know him and have a relationship with him. And then that trickles down to the believer because here's the other issue that stymies us with the Trinity. I like the word stymie. Um, the other issue is, we say, well, why does it matter for personal life? Like, Trinity is this, is this pie-in-the-sky, ivory tower concept, right? It's something that men with white beards, far disconnected from, you know, 
uh, real life argue about in their, in their universities. But it's, it doesn't affect real life. No, it's, not, it's just not true. Like, theology matters. And actually, everybody has a theology. Everybody has some kind of belief that underlies about God and, and how he operates, whether he exists or doesn't, you know, what God's cool with and what he's not cool with. Like, everybody has something that then, like, enables the way that we live our lives, some kind of belief along those lines, right? Theology really matters, and, and, and it's true here, too, because if we truly know him, then we're no longer operating out of a deficit when we relate to one another in the life of a church. Rather than entering into a relationship with the church with the neediness of deficit, which can, you know, like, where we come in trying to get from others what we can only receive from Christ, which can only lead to holding grudges, being vindictive. The Apostle Paul talks about like devouring one another in Galatians. We're, rather than that, like we have the love of Christ. And if we have the love of Christ, we're loved enough by him, we're so satisfied in his love that rather than looking for ultimate acceptance and approval by way of deficit from everyone else, we can now live for him, on mission, right? Like, place our preferences aside. Like, all of us have preferences. All of us come into play to, to this church, to gospel life with preferences. We have things that, like, we like to see happen. The problem with preferences is when they become, like, our needs. Like, I need to have that, right? Like, it's just a preference, but I, I need it. And we're, we're operating out of some kind of deficit. But no, like, if I'm, loved en- if I'm truly loved enough by Jesus to offer the same thing to others, and this is what the New Testament tells us. What am I able to do? Place my preferences aside for the sake of mission. Realize that it's not about us and our preferences, but about Christ and his mission. Why? Because in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. No deficit. So in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and now thirdly, the Word was God. Again, each step grows more intense That's the point. John just keeps upping the ante. This Jesus of Nazareth that he's about to write about was in the beginning with God, that he's writing about now, was in the beginning with God and is himself God. To be very clear, there is no way of translating this, and I'm happy to to talk to you more about this. There is no way to translate this any other way than the word was God. Okay, Um, this is one of the ways you can always tell that someone falls into a false claim about Jesus or that there's some kind of a false religion at play. If the only way that, that the claim of that, the central claim of that religion can be true is to actually rewrite what the scriptures clearly say, there's your dead giveaway. Because like I'm not aware of a single scholar on the planet at any kind of accredited institution anyway who would argue that this verse says anything other than, regardless of how you might interpret, in terms of the grammar, the word was God, and yet you have religions that find a way in order to make their central claim work to say the word was a God. Oh man, the problems with that are too much to talk about in 45 minutes. But the problem that we'll deal with now is that John constructs the grammar in such a way as to actually emphasize the point. He's emphasizing the point. Like he's saying, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Like it's emphatic. The word was God. Like, as we read John, it becomes very clear that not only is he saying that here, but both here and in many other places in his gospel, he's really the most straightforward of all New Testament authors, probably because of his non-believing audience, in making sure that we understand that there is no confusion on this point, that Jesus himself is God. He doesn't want anyone missing that. He doesn't want anyone confused, so he speaks in clear terms. John is saying, this book that I'm writing to you, 
to you spiritually seeking non-believers. This book is about God's own powerful self-disclosure, entering into human history in the person of Jesus Christ, God himself, that you might know him. And so to go back to this summary that we partially read earlier, let me read this again. When heaven and earth were created, there was the word of God already existing in the closest association with God and partaking of the essence of God. What we find in John's gospel is that the reason he starts with this verse is because the rest of what he has to say hinges on it, totally hinges on it. Again, if you remember the purpose of the book last week, writing evangelistically to spiritually seeking people, specifically spiritually seeking Greek and Jewish people who are non-believers who don't know Jesus, seeking to answer the question, who's the Christ? Who's the Messiah? Who's the, the one whom God would send? John begins by telling his readers that it is God's own self-disclosure. Going back to our line of questions, listen, God the eternally preexistent and all-powerful one who created the heavens and the earth. Being a good God, he revealed himself. And he revealed himself centrally in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus is God. Jesus then, what does he do? What's Jesus' function throughout John's gospel? Jesus reveals God's heart for us. His love for us. His intention in coming that we might know Him and love Him and receive Him and have our ultimate need at the center of our hearts met by Him and not by me and not by anyone else and not by any other thing because none of those things were ever intended, even if they're good things, to actually meet my, the ultimate need at the center of my heart. It's instead met in Christ. And so before John gets into all of the things that Jesus said and did, he tells us who he was. And because of who he was, he actually now is able to do all of those things that John is going to tell us that he did. Centrally at the cross. I love how Barrett puts it. He says, John intends that the whole of his gospel shall be read in light of this verse. You know, some of you this morning, in seeing that I changed it from, in my study, John 1, 1 through 5, on our first week, to now just John 1.1. 1, 1. You you're a little nervous. You know, you're like, hey, we're going, we're going one verse at a time here? You know, Jeremy's wearing a suit. Like, we're, I, by my math, like 879 verses in John, divided by 52, it's like 16.9 years, right? Um, but no, like, I promise we're going to have... We're going to preach section by section. Next week we are doing two through five. Okay, I'm pretty sure. And, um, and yet the reason we, did, we had to spend some time here, settling here this week, is because exactly what Barrett just says. John intends that the whole of his gospel should be, light in, in, in the, shall be read in the light of this verse. He says the deeds and words of Jesus are the deeds and words of God. If this be not true, the book is blasphemous. Everything that we read from here on out is blasphemous. If this be not true. And the deed at the center of this word, the deed at the center of what this word came to do would be at the cross. The cross itself would be meaningless without chapter 1, verse 1, without who Jesus is. The cross is meaningless. If this word was not God, the cross would have no power. And yet because Jesus is God, 
He's able to take the central problem we had upon himself at the cross because Jesus is man, fully man. You know, he's, he's uniquely qualified, as, as John Stott says, to be humanity's redeemer, fully God, fully man, and it's only because of who he is he's able to do what he said he would do. Become flesh to rescue us at the cross. That was the, that's the extent of Jesus' love. Like, John shows us, like, John's going to show us as we move forward, the extent of Jesus' love. If you're here and you don't know Jesus and, you know, you're not totally sure what the Scriptures teach about Jesus, it's like, we're going to see the extent of his love throughout the book. Like, proves true the claim that Jesus, needing nothing himself, having no deficit, didn't come in order to, to receive something that he was low on, but to display his love to us seen centrally at the cross. And this is the central message that Christians proclaim, that John will proclaim in his gospel, and that we now proclaim to one another because we come weekly to say that because of who Jesus was, what he did with his body broken and blood shed on our behalf made a way for me to be reconciled to God. And so we remind each other of that weekly. If you're a believer, this meal that we share together representing Christ's death for us is for you. And if you are a non-believer, we ask that you would just participate by observing and asking questions. Um, but I invite you forward to receive these elements and bring them back to your seats.